Hello everybody, welcome back to another brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, hello there, I'm your host Simon, what happens here? Uh, one of my writers today, Chris, thank you Chris, has written me a script. This one, um, it's a famous one, this is a true cl- crime classic, if you will. And I like to sprinkle these in as well. At first, I think I mentioned this before, I was really hesitant to do all the super famous ones, because honestly they've been covered like 700 times. But then I did a couple, and people uh, who watch this on YouTube, there's a comment section, and they were like, oh, I like this, it was a new take. And uh, also our stuff tends to be a little bit longer, so we do a bit of a deep dive, I suppose. Anyway, I'm pretty I'm, I'm pretty into it. So let's just cover the Black Dahlia. Uh, also, thank you to Jen, who edits this show. Thank you, Jen. Brilliant work, as always. I assume. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, let's just jump in, shall we? Oh, by the way, I went on to... Sorry, I know you've not something got on with the bloody podcast already. I looked up on Spotify the other day. This show has, and I know by saying this, it's absolutely going to drop down because people will just troll me on purpose and I'm very hesitant to say it. But I went on to Spotify and this show has a perfect 5.0 with 5,000 reviews. And I'm like, that is insane. And so, well... I want to say thank you very much and I'm sure now I've said it, it's going to drop down to 4.9 as everyone's like let's see if we can adjust that but or let's see if we can get it up just uh, more reviews always looks great and uh, thank you so much I, I really appreciate it and it's super nice to see because uh, yeah it's like a little bit of feedback isn't it it's January of 1947 and Phoebe Short is at home in Medford Massachusetts. The phone rings, and because it's the 40s, ignoring it isn't really an option. Wait, why can't you just ignore it? Wait, why can't you ignore the phone in the 1940s? What am I missing? I've used those rotary phones. I remember a friend of mine, Ferrets, had one of those, you know, those like old school phones growing up. And why can you just, if it rings, you could just, if you want to ignore it, just let it ring out or just whoop. You know, just lift it up and drop it down and that will disconnect the call. The caller is a man named Wayne Sutton who says he's a reporter for the LA Examiner, one of the two biggest LA newspapers at the time. He's calling to tell Phoebe that her daughter Elizabeth has won a beauty contest in Southern California and he tells her he needs to do background and wants details about Elizabeth for the story. Phoebe swells with pride, gladly enumerating her third daughter's many accomplishments, details about her school career, her life, her personality. Uh-oh. These days, if anyone... I feel like when someone phones and asks me this like personal questions, I'm like, even when someone phones and says, hi, is this Simon? I always ask who's speaking because I'm like, I don't know who that could fucking be. And it's just, I don't know. We're serious. Everyone's so super guarded these days. If someone just phoned me up and said, your child has won a competition. Can you tell me her person? I'd be like, you can, uh, you can immediately off. (laughs) Are we just all jaded people in the future because i don't know it just seems like that's the world we live in where they're just going to use this to market the shit out of me they're just gonna be like okay great because i've done i've done this job i've done that job where you uh phone people up and it wasn't really sales because it was like business to business and it was everyone complains about this job i actually didn't mind it but it'd be like you got a big spreadsheet in front of you with a bunch of numbers to call and i feel like i mean glenn gary glenn ross <laughs> it wasn't like that and uh yeah as soon as you get through and you're like okay great and you say, you know, be like, Mr. John Smith, is this his number? And you're like, hi, is that John Smith? And be like, John Smith speaking. And you're like, bingo, baby, John Smith, that's his number. <laughs> and then next time you could be like, oh, hi, John, it's Simon. And then it's, you know, um, you, this like sales bull. 
Back in the examiner offices in LA, Wayne Sutton is sitting next to the city editor, Jimmy Richardson. Also present is sports columnist Jimmy Murray. I feel like Jimmy, I was gonna say, as soon as city editor Jimmy Richardson came up, I'm like, Jimmy is the most journalisty name ever. Like, 1940 journalist called Jimmy. I think it's just because I watched uh, Superman, The Adventures of Lois and Clark, or whatever it was, where there was Jimmy the... He was like the junior guy in the office, right? But there's two Jimmys in this office. Jimmy Murray. They're all listening on the call as Sutton butters up Mrs. Short in order to get more personal detail on her daughter. Whoa! He actually works for the newspaper. I thought he was just bull to be to do some sort of crime. After a long while, Sutton covers the mouthpiece on the phone and asks his editor what to tell her what to do next. Tell her says Richardson, and Sutton reveals the true purpose of his call. Phoebe's daughter Elizabeth has been found murdered, and the whole beauty contest thing has been a ploy to get a scoop on the victim. You f***ing assholes, man. There's a famous, fa it went on for years, the phone hacking scandal, where uh, Rupert Murdoch's uh, News of the World, which subsequently, it went out of business or it got shut down or something like that, allegedly. And uh, it was this huge scandal about um, journalists from that organization um, breaking into celebrities' voicemails to get scoops on stories on them. This is worse. This is so much worse. You b****ed. You son of a Sutton said to Richardson before telling Phoebe the news. Phoebe was obviously shocked by this sudden turn and initially refused to believe it was true. This might seem a bit strange, but imagine a complete stranger has called you out of the blue and then revealed he's been lying to you the whole time you've been talking before telling you the news that you really don't want to hear. I think a great many people would refuse to believe a word he said. I wouldn't refuse to believe it, but I'd be like, yo, you're obviously a lying piece of shit, so uh, how about I hear this from a cop? It wasn't until later, when official death notification was executed by Medford Police, that Mrs. Short accepted that her daughter had been killed. She had to fly out to LA to identify the body, something she refused to do for two days, unwilling to have her last memory of her daughter be of the condition in which her killer had left her. But the only other relative to hand was her eldest daughter, Virginia, who lived in Berkeley and had come to LA to be with her mother, and Virginia hadn't seen her sister in years. So eventually, Phoebe relented, and after struggling to recognize Elizabeth through the marks of the beating, her killer had doled out completed the identification really that's how we have to do it can't there be some other way to confirm the identity or can't we just at least use a photo or something i could not do that i would not want to do that this turns my stomach this is horrible this little vignette of the appalling mistreatment of elizabeth short and her family is emblematic of the black dahlia case the victim a family and the murder itself have all been subject to relentless sensationalism and exploitation from the very first moment the body was found added to this the backdrop los angeles in the mid-40s is one of the most heavily mythologized settings in history fact fantasy myth and history have all converged on the brutal slaying of elizabeth short warping and altering every aspect of this case it's hard enough investigating an apparently one-off murder committed by a forensically aware perpetrator. It's even harder with the powerful forces of nemo-history. That is a big brain word that I don't know. Nemo-history. I'm going to look that up. Is that a real word, Chris? <laughs> I'm getting some weird about alternative therapies when I Google it. Everyone listening is like, Simon, how do you not know this word? <laughs> do you have a brain? Uh, it's even more harder when the powerful forces of Minemo history interlace the facts and events with the border. broader tapestry of the past, twisting and inflating a personal tragedy into a teleological mortality tale. Oh my god. Chris, did you use two words I don't know in one sentence? I'm a genius, what can I say? I don't know why I admit to not knowing these words. Teleological, relating to or involving the explanation of phenomena in terms of purpose they serve rather than the cause by which they arise. Oh, thank you, Dictionary. That's really cleared it up. 
You see, I, I don't understand your language. Or to put it in simpler terms, that would be nice. When the killing is warped into a fable to illustrate LA in the 40s as the city of sin, truth, and the human victims of the crime. And the human victims of the crime go by the wayside. Why can't we have led with that, Chris? Now my small brain is like, okay. <laughs> it's all about mythologizing uh, a time in the past, you know, putting on those rose-tinted glasses. The Magdalia is, of course, one of the most famous and longest enduring cold cases in the LAPD's history. The nature of the murder, the nickname given to the case, the intersection of some of its aspects with the movie business and organized crime, all in the very dead center of the noir era, have all contributed to its mythification. I'd originally intended to do the usual thing with unsolved cases, that being a description of the crime and investigation and a summary of the more notable theories, both wacky and plausible that have emerged over the years. And I will, of course, do this. Excellent. But during my research, it became apparent that not only was almost every single fact of the case in dispute, but the reasons for this were rooted in a sort of mania to use and abuse the story in pursuit of each narrator's agenda. And while this is understandable when it comes to high-profile or emblematic incidents in history, the net effect of this is to not only dehumanize the victim, but also tarnish and abuse her memory. So, as well as trying to bring some forensic order to the morass of myth and legend surrounding the case, I'm also determined to do Obit to restore some of the human dignity which has been taken away from the victim Elizabeth Short and her mother Phoebe. Good. Excellent. I always like this. Um, I won't take credit for it, but I do very much feel... I mean, I'm sort of... I, I don't want... It feels weird because I feel like I'm taking credit for it anyway, but I want to give full credit to Chris and the other writers because I read these and I feel we do a good job, generally speaking, most of the time. I realize I sometimes can say something insensitive when I'm not thinking properly. Um, I think we do quite a good job of, of humanizing the victims and making the story about the victims rather than the perpetrators. And also for me, personally, I'm always like, People like Simon, I like how you take the, you know, you, you're respectful to the victims, generally. and uh, But the perpetrators you absolutely tear into. And I'm like, well, how else would I do it? Because in the story, it's like, well, the victims are the victims. And the perpetrators are the d So, I don't know. It just seems to make sense to me anyway. Let's carry on. Glad to see that's what we're going to be doing today. In pursuit of this, the painstaking and excellent researcher journalist Larry Harnish, who's currently working on a book about Dahlia murders, stands out as unsensational and impressively thorough. While I don't necessarily subscribe to his theoretical suspect, the fact is that he didn't start off trying to solve the murder, which gives his research purity, which many of the others lack. I'll be citing his work quite a lot, so if you're one of the many Dahlia enthusiasts who prefer the more sensational or conspiratorial researchers and sleuths, I give you fair warning that we're probably not going to agree on very much. Excellent. I love it. Chris, you're on exactly the same page as me, and uh, this um, Larry Harnish as well, the journalist, I guess we're all on the same page. Like, logic should reign supreme in something like this. Let's not dive into all the weird conspiracy theories. Let's just look at what the evidence is in front of us. The Other Sin City for Americans, the Second World War was a complex and formative phenomenon. From 1939 to 1942, division was rife, with a great deal of social mobilization occurring both in favor of direct involvement 
as well as against. Continual attacks on American merchant shipping and then the attack on Pearl Harbor sealed the deal for the pro-war factions, and the USA embarked on its second full national military mobilization within the space of a few decades. Just like in World War I, and just like many other countries, they weren't really ready for it. Significant disruptions were caused by the rapid assumption of a wartime posture, not least of which was a near-complete halt in housing development. Over the course of the war, more than 12 million U.S. citizens cycled through the armed forces, 60% of whom were draftees. 73% of military members served overseas for an average of about a year and a half, and only 40% had rear echelon or non-combat jobs. Oh my god, that's a lot of people going to fight in a war who don't want to fight in a war. Given that the population... As... I don't know. As a British... As a Brit... And I guess it really... I understand why America didn't enter the war, because it would be like, wait, we have to send like 12 million of our people to fight a war, which at that point was just in Europe and the Pacific, and it's like, you know where America isn't? <laughs> Europe or the Pacific. And then, of course, Pearl Harbor happens, and it's like, well, okay, that, of course, is a galvanizing event. But still, that... I know Hawaii's a state, but... It, it reminds me of that movie, The Iron Lady, where Margaret Thatcher gets all upset over the Falkland Islands, and then the Secretary of State from the US or whatever, and I'm sure it's a fictionalized line, is like, well, why are you so, why are you so worried about an island that's halfway around the world from you? And she's like, well, how would you feel if someone bombed Hawaii or invaded Hawaii? And it, it's like, yeah, fair. But as if I was an American at that time, I'd be like, why do I have to go and fight in this war in Europe? They're just, what are we doing? Why are we drafting me? I don't want to go. Whereas if you're in England, you're like, oh, shit, the war is real close. And that Hitler guy is coming. War is complicated. Surprising. Great story, Simon. Given that the population at this time was about 134 million, this means that just under 10% of Americans were in uniform and directly participating in the war effort. This might not sound like much, but the fact is that if 10% of population is doing anything, a vast majority of the entire country is at most only a few degrees of separation away from it. Yeah, one degree of separation. 10% of the people are off at war, unless you're in like some tiny minority, you know someone who went off to war. Unless you'd live in a closet. What this amounts to is the fact that almost every American life was touched by the war in some way. Of course, for many people, life carried on as usual, but with the war as a constant background noise and friends and relatives in uniform either at home or overseas, during the war years there was a significant dip in reported crime, though whether that's because of an actual reduction or just a decrease in reporting is still hotly debated today. Conversely, organized crime was rampant. The syndicates which had sprung up to take advantage of prohibition were still going strong, having refocused on narcotics, gambling, prostitution and war profiteering oh my god prohibition was such a terrible idea now i mean what's that great quote it's like communism's like prohibition it's a good idea it just doesn't work except i don't necessarily think communism or prohibition were very good ideas <laughs> it's a really nice quote though um but prohibition just caused a rise in crime which i guess it was supposed to stop also I'd be really pissed off if I can't have a beer. The depression in the 30s and then the mass demobilization of troops in the mid-40s prov provided fruitful recruiting pools of well-trained and often angry and disappointed men able to handle firearms and plan and execute organized violence. This is the period of Murder, Inc., the syndicate, the LAPD, gangster squad, and other fabled tropes of American noir. It's no accident that post-war Los Angeles was the backdrop of the works for Raymond Chandler, films like LA Confidential, games like LA Noir, and a numberless host of iconic works of classic gangster fiction. Moreover, U.S. police forces weren't particularly well set to deal with organized crime. Some forces in the LAPD was a notorious example of this. They even saw the enablement of organized crime as the lesser of two evils. This was especially true when it came to vice and gambling. 
so rife was vice in fact that one woman publicly offered to put money towards a whipping post to deal with all the degenerate sex criminals of the city holy shit. <laughs> it's like i want my whipping post put it in the city square <laughs> What are you up to? It's an insane thing to say. This kind of hysteria and paranoia were par for the course as well. This period also saw the height of the infamous Senator McCarthy and his House Un-American Activities Committee, the famous anti-communist witch hunt, which went on until 1975. The role and treatment of women was also prominent in the public consciousness at the time, with women all over the Western world either transitioning from work or uniform service back into homemaking, or bitterly complaining about the sudden snapping back of their temporarily enhanced role in society. All these factors and more combined to create a fertile environment for the seed of a story which was to echo down the decades, maintaining prominence until the present day. Of course, this is a very telescoped and selective view of what's actually a highly complex historical period. But as my favorite history professor always used to say, history is not the past. Oh, that's another good one. The past is the exact pitch of the whispering leaves around the field of Agincourt as the wind blew through them. It's every crumb of every meal eaten or missed by a myriad people through the ages, most of whom never even made the slightest dint in the historical record. The past is the living mind of Elizabeth Short to whatever she was doing in her famous Lost Week, right up to the final horrific moments of her death. History, on the other hand, is the stuff we remember, the records we choose or are lucky enough to unearth, and the weave and pattern we make of them to explain the past and the present. The past here is a complex one. The world of mid-40s LA is at the same time familiar and bizarre. I think we all understand being exhausted with war and catastrophe, anxiety about the declining morals of a new generation or, or of society in general. We'd all identify, I think, with a simultaneous sense of doom and optimism which characterizes the public mood at times of great historical significance, like the one we live in today. But I think we'd struggle to understand a world where journalists could customarily be found hanging around police detective bureaus, so much so that the LAPD had a beer and rations budget for reporters. Where the decidedly narrow-band radio telegraph was the fastest speed at which information could travel, where a ballpoint pen cost three days' wages and newspapers came out multiple times a day and were seen as authoritative arbiters of truth. Some things never changed, though. As Lord Harmsworth, first editor of the Daily Mail, said, Sex things, health things, and weather things will always be news. And in the saddest and most grisly way possible, the murder of Elizabeth Short fell into that first category. Chris, that is one of my favorite paragraphs that I've ever read. That was beautifully written. Well done. A body is found. We need to start this section with a content warning. We're going to be describing in some detail the findings of what has generally been accepted as the autopsy report. This isn't a reveling gore, but rather because the detail of the violence visited upon the body of Betty Short are important both to subsequent theories of what happened as well as to the enduring currency of the Black Dahlia case. And while we're not talking eight immortals or monster of the Andes level of slaughter and mayhem, the content is still quite disturbing in its own way. Oh my god, those two episodes. Uh, the eight immortals was a horrible story, but I just felt that monster of the Andes, the Pedro Lopez episode, that has stuck with me for months for its horror. And I don't regret to, I don't regret reading about it because i think it's important to be aware of history and and the, the horrors of the world to be honest because you know the world is not the most rosy place all the time but god 
Damn. It's about 10 in the morning on the 15th of January 1947. Mrs. Betty Berzinger's on her way to pick up her husband's shoes from the cobblers where they're being repaired. As she walks down South Norton Avenue in Lame Park area of LA, she's pushing her three-year-old daughter, Taylor Top Pram, a prestigious brand which she, to this day, proudly points out to people who want to hear her story. <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt in this, like, horrible murder part to talk about babies' strollers or co- um, not cots. What do we call them in English? push jazz americans call them strollers um i this is such a scam i think i talked about this before but it's like these things cut they cost like a grand american and i'm like this is insane and i feel like i was like my wife's like yeah it's just what they cost and i'm like can we get a cheaper one please and so we still have one but it's like it's like 700 dollars equivalent it was like it was insane and then we had a second kid and it's like we need this double stroller and i'm like i'm not we're not we're not spending another grand on a double stroller that we're going to use for six months before the kid gets on the little thing you know that rides next to it or just walks the first kid that is and so we find one i have they told this story before i was just in the park and we were really struggling to find this is i'm sorry this is such a tangent but i'm going to finish the story you can skip forward if you want we're just walking in the park me and my wife and my kid and my wife's pregnant and we've really been struggling to find a double stroller and we see someone with a double stroller and we're like that looks perfect that's exactly what we want go over i said to my wife go over and ask them what they want go, what what brand of stroller that is and she's like really and I'm like, yeah just go over and ask just just do it go on go on i would do it but i don't speak good enough check and they'd think that I, i'd struggle through asking them this thing so i'm like i just go off and do it wife <laughs> and she's like okay so she goes over to them and then it turns out that they just put it on for sale on like the um the internet forum boards or whatever and uh so we're like can we buy it <laughs> so we just buy this stroller off these people this is an amazing solution thanks simon you just wasted three minutes of my life with your stupid story let's get back to the episode and it costs like a hundred bucks was the final point here and i don't give a shit. it doesn't look very good it looks like it's second hand for sure and you know how much I, I have no embarrassment i don't care i don't care and you see people rolling around with their fancy strollers and i'm just like oh whatever <laughs> i don't i don't care could i buy a fancy stroller yes absolutely definitely um do, do i want to spend my money on no no <laughs> absolutely not <laughs> Lima Park today is still quite a famous area as its western boundary is Crenshaw and it's only a few blocks from the south central LA, LA region, region made famous by the likes of NWA. Back then, however, I have no idea what any of this stuff is. What is south central? What is NWA? Back then, however, it was mostly a white middle-class neighborhood full of young families. South Norton Avenue was one of the many pockets of abandoned or empty lots still lying fallow from World War II's impact on the construction industry, so Mrs. Berzinger has to pick her way through the broken glass and rubble on the pavement. At some point, she looks over to her right and spots what she at first believes to be a discarded mannequin. It soon becomes apparent, however, that this is a dead body. Mrs. Berzinger rushes to the nearby house to use the telephone. Nobody answers at the first house she tries, but the people next door let her in and she calls the police. The police operator gets the number she's calling from, but not her name, and then Mrs. Berzinger goes to pick up the shoes. This is the story that Betty Berzinger herself told to Larry Harnish, and and one that's consistent with her other accounts that she's given over the years. So it's interesting then that by far the most popular version of the story comes from XLAPD officer Jack Webb's book The Badge, where Mrs. Berzinger's daughter disobediently runs off to play in the vacant lots before stumbling over the body. In Webb's version, it's a morality tale 
with an inner morality tale. The disobedient little girl's waywardness leading her to stumble over a murder victim, a sort of pocket analogy for the legend of Elizabeth Short herself, cast as a similarly wayward lost girl whose wanderings through the vicious Hollywood underworld brought her to a grisly end. As Larry Harnish himself says, nobody can tell the story straight. Everyone wants to f with it. I like this. Um, because you often see, like, you'll get someone who writes a story and there'll be, you know, there'll be a little bit of embellishment in there. And that little embellishment will get passed around as fact and fact again and repeated by a bunch of sources. And then it gets, you're in the future and someone will, you know, like me, <laughs> like a show like this, would say it and be like, what, you got a source for that? And it's like, yeah, there's like 10 sources. And then it's like, yeah, but when you look at the primary research or whatever, like this Larry dude's doing, it's like you find out something completely different and i love that and here we go with the disturbing content this account of the condition of the body comes from fragments of testimony given at the coroner's inquest as well as a published account of the coroner's report which the author claims was hand copied by an ex-lapd detective while these might seem to be tenuous sources they do match pretty well exactly the photographic evidence which is available and the lapd accepts the account to be true. There are aspects that they still won't comment on as the case is still open and the file has never been released, but it's generally thought that these accounts can be trusted. Elizabeth Short's body was found naked in a supine or face-up position on a vacant lot on the west side of South, North Aven South Norton Avenue, halfway between West 39th and Coliseum. Her eyes were open and her arms were posed at right angles, palms facing upward and above her head. The reason Mrs. Berzinger thought she had seen a mannequin was the fact that the body was pure chalk white as it had been exsanguated or drained of blood. There was a ligature mark on her neck, but the subsequent examination found no internal trauma indicative of fatal strangulation. Her head was badly beaten, her face puffed and livid. There were small vertical cuts in her upper lip, possibly caused by the beating or deliberately inflicted in some other way, as well as multiple small abrasions around the forehead. Small cuts had also been inflicted near the bridge of her nose. On both sides of her face, a long gash had been cut, slightly differing in length on each side. The surrounding tissue was echomotic, meaning blood from traumatized vessels had risen to the top layer of skin, discoloring it. Both the asymmetry and echomosis may suggest that these cuts were inflicted while she was still alive. The effects of these cuts was to create a hideous grin, one of the grim, iconic images of the Dahlia case. Patches of skin had been cut away from her breasts, probably post-mortem. Her teeth were in extremely poor shape, heavily decayed, and some were loose, possibly as a result of being struck. The upper half of the torso was separated from the lower half by a long, neat incision passing through the duodenum and the second and lumbar vertebrae. Most agree that this incision was made post-mortem. Her lower half was separated by about 10 inches laterally and 5 longitudinally from when the upper, where the upper half lay. It was posed with her legs straight out and spread wide apart. All internal organs were still present and her intestines had been tucked away neatly under her buttocks. There was an old surgical scar on her side which matched records of medical procedure that she'd had when she was younger. Her rectum was unusually dilated, and her stomach contained nothing but feces and pellets of fertilizer. While the LAPD will not confirm or deny this, the copy of the report made by the ex-detective states the tattoo of a rose which had been on her left thigh had been cut off and inserted into her vagina. No traces of sperm were found anywhere in her body, but it's clear from the report that the coroner suspected that she may have been raped. The cause of the death was determined to be hemorrhage from the head trauma, as well as blood loss. Chris. Okay. I, I'm glad we did that as scientifically as possible, but I'm ready to move on. Okay, that's it. I apologize for those who found that a bit rough. And for any psychos out there that found it enjoyable, please don't thank me. I... No one finds this enjoyable, right? 
if you find this enjoyable, you should get checked out. You really should. That's not right. In fact, don't come anywhere near me or anyone else and get mental help instead. Totally agree. Anyway, Pia, this gore stuff that people are actually into is so... Oof. Anyway, the point of this is all to show that Elizabeth Short's death involved violence and torture, possibly over several days. This isn't actually that unusual for a sexually motivated murder. What is unusual, however, is the surgical precision with which, with which the body was bisected. One of the original detectives on the case thought perhaps the killer might be a butcher especially given that there were a bunch of butchers on strike in the city at the time. Later investigators and researchers, however, were more inclined to interpret the treatment of the body as suggestive of medical rather than game-dressing skills, which will become important later. The contradictory evidence is a recurring feature of the Black Dahlia case. The presence of fertilizer and the exsanguination both strongly suggest hunters and farmers. The neatness of the bisection, and most importantly the method of bisection, suggests medical practice. The posing, cleaning, and bisection of the body suggest a methodical, a methodical and careful sex-motivated killer, but the choice of location is extremely high risk and suggests some kind of personal connection either to the victim, the locale, or both. Media Circus Will Fowler, who was working for the LA Examiner at the time, wrote in his memoir, Reporters, that he was the first journalist on the scene and had arrived before the police. He talks about closing Elizabeth Short's eyes and helping to move the lower half of the body into the transport to be taken away. Retired LAPD patrol officer Will Fitzgerald, however, says that he was the first on the scene and that there were no reporters present. These are only two of multiple conflicting accounts. In any event, roughly a dozen police officers and a horde of reporters descended on the scene. There's a lot of photographs from that day, and to a modern CSI-minded audience, they look truly bizarre. There's no police tape up anywhere. People are smoking and wandering all over the crime scene, poking around and taking pictures. Some photographers have climbed on top of the emergency vehicles in order to get a better shot of the body, and the scene, taken as a whole, is basically mayhem. This was kind of before much, much of forensics, right? So I guess that stuff was less important. They're like, hey, you contaminated the crime scene. <laughs> With what? My flakes of skin. My tiny flakes of skin are going to do nothing. <laughs> Future people. Yes, good lord, yes. <laughs> I know it sounds insane, but I promise you, please stop. This isn't unusual for the time, however. As mentioned earlier, the relationship between the LAPD and the press was extremely chummy. Some trusted reporters were even issued with LA County Sheriff courtesy badges, as well as press passes. Good lord, how about you just do some policing and stop trying to, like, sell everything to the papers? Photos from the morgue where the initial examination took place seem equally chaotic, as the room was thronged with police officers and reporters alike. It was actually routine for journalists to attend high-profile autopsies, so journalists from the LA Examiner were present when police were struggling to fingerprint the body. This just seems very disrespectful, guys. And I know it's like journalists and reporters and especially photographers, right? The paparazzi, not exactly known for their respect. I mean, that that feels like I'm slamming journalists, do I? I think journalists generally do a fantastic job. But the ones like these guys like selling the crime stories where it's like brutal murder in central LA. These kind guys are kind of a bit scummy, right? <laughs> How about some respect? The reason for their difficulties was that the killer had washed the body so thoroughly that the fingertips were wrinkled from moisture, so it took them quite a while to lift visible prints. Once this was done, it was discovered that the bad weather was delaying flights from LA, so the cops decided they'd mail the prints to the FBI, who kept the central database. One of the examiner's editors, however, suggested they use something called a sound photo machine. Oh my god, is this going to be like a, 
OG fax machine? This was a device which enabled transmission of photographic information via telegraph, a sort of primitive fax machine, in the 1940s. No way! I had no idea. That seems well ahead of its time. The police agreed, and Elizabeth Short was identified from an application to work at Camp Cook, as well as for an arrest for underage drinking in Santa Barbara. And because it was the examiner's machine being used, they knew the identity of the body before the police and used it to call the victim's mother, Phoebe, in order to dupe her with the story about the beauty contest. He... This, this pisses me off. The examiner didn't have it all their own way, though. Over there at the Herald Express, another Hearst paper, they had to contend with the formidable Aggie Underwood, a pioneer for women in journalism, and by all accounts, an absolute force of nature. Aggie was just as aggressive as Richardson, and the two papers ran neck and neck for some time in terms of information they uncovered and turned over to the police in exchange for exclusive scoops. On top of this, the LA, I feel like the police here are like, yeah, we could do work, or we could just rely on journalists and uh, the mafia to do the work for us because didn't we say earlier they were like yeah no well, the mafia is the lesser of two evils they kind of keep some order and it's like police what exactly is your job again <laughs> come on why would we do any investigating the journalists will do us for that all we have to do is wait for them to deliver the story pass me another donut on top of this, the LA Daily News had a mole, a man appropriately named Ringer, who would smuggle copy over to the Daily News to be printed as an exclusive. Its short press activity was frantic, and even with the symbiotic relationship between the media and the police, to our modern eyes, the whole, thing's look, the whole thing looks like utter chaos. When one of the first printed sentences about the case was being written, an editor for the Daily News added the word beautiful to it, without ever having once laid eyes on Elizabeth Short. Initially dubbed the werewolf murder by Aggie Underwood, reporters digging around Elizabeth Short's life discovered that a nickname at a drugstore she frequented was the Black Dahlia. This was either because of her black hair and clothing or a play on the recent film The Blue Dahlia or both. Once Underwood published the information, the Black Dahlia moniker stuck, stuck making this one of the few occasions when a high-profile American murder was named for the victim instead of the killer. The sheer aggression. This is one of the depressing things about true crime. It's like you never remember the victims' names. It's always the, uh, it's always the murderers. Which is a bit depressing, isn't it? But it's infamy. It's not fame weird. The sheer aggression and power of the newspapers in this period probably had something to do with the fact that television hadn't really taken off in the US yet, but it probably had much more to do with the influence of one William Randolph Hearst, there we go, not Randall, Randolph, a member of the most member of one of the most unpleasant dynasties in American history, an absolute titan of publishing and a deeply unscrupulous man. Yeah, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to say that his story was good, it's just, it's super interesting. His leadership of the Examiner, one of the papers he founded, left a deep mark on its operations, so much so that many of the wildest excesses of the tabloids in those days were often referred to as Hearst reporting. The more usual name for it is yellow journalism, a juggernaut of exploitative, unethical, and dishonest practices which makes even today's most outrageous tabloid scream sheets look staid and dignified by comparison. Yeah, especially in the past where it was like way less developed, and you could just say, like, journalists would say some crazy and be like, okay. Is that true at all? It's like, nah, we just mostly guessed. What are you gonna do about it? And that's these are these are who I mean. These like yellow journalism compared to like because I feel like I ragged on all journalists earlier when which is absolutely not what I meant to do. I think like a lot of journalism is amazing. Um but this kind of stuff is just trashy and bad. 
One of the most popular points of view is that the media took advantage of an inept police force for their own purposes and fatally torpedoed the investigation in the process. There are many from both inside and outside the force, however, who disagree. The task force assembled to investigate the Black Dahlia case was known as a crack team, with hundreds of investigators from other forces and agencies drafted in to help. And the relentless media attention, while it unearthed an unusually high number of confessing Sam slang for those who falsely confessed to crimes, also uncovered a great many of the earliest and and most promising leads <laughs> confessing sams i'm amazed there's a word for that is it really such a problem <laughs> people just randomly confess to crimes they didn't do <laughs> that seems like an insane thing to do it does seem that while it all might look appallingly messy to modern eyes, in terms of the gold standard of policing at the time, the Black Dahlia investigation was well conducted. The problem really seems to lie in the nature of the crime, the enigmatic life and movements of the victim, and the highly organized and forensically aware conduct of the killer. Who was Elizabeth Short? Naturally, one of the first things the investigators tried to do was piece together a picture of the victim, her movements, and her personality. They discovered a character beset with contrasts, a contradictory and elusive figure. This wasn't helped by her own reticence, as she hid the truth about herself from everyone around her, including her own mother, possibly as a form of emotional self-defense. Beth, or Betty as she preferred to be known at different stages of her life, was a complex and inconsistent person. It's a testament to the quality of the police investigation that had uncovered some of this, instead of leaving nothing but the two-dimensional cutout more usual in this kind of case. Betty was born on July the 29th, 1924, to Phoebe and Cleo Short. She was the third of five daughters, all of whom were born within eight years. Cleo Short was a builder of mini golf courses, and it's interesting how deadpan the contemporary sources are about this. There must have been a lot of mini golf around in those days. The depression seems to have hit this industry hard because in 1930, Cleo parked his car on a bridge and simply disappeared. Mini I love mini golf. I know we're just talking about a guy who basically just disappeared in the hands of his family. <laughs> I just felt it was an appropriate time to be like, enjoy some mini golf. Lately, I've been playing, I've got one of those uh, virtual reality Oculus Quest things, and I've been playing, I, I don't play golf in real life. I mean, I've played golf a little bit, but like not regularly or, you know, like a hobby. But I've started playing this virtual reality golf. It's great. It's so relaxing. Sometimes I'll be recording some videos, do a couple of holes. It's nice. And they've also got a little putting. they got a crazy golf course on the game as well. I'm like, this is great. Or mini golf. We, uh, we call it crazy golf. It's also, it's the same thing as mini golf, right? Where you'd like the putting green with a windmill and sh Fascinating tangent, Simon. Thank you. Cleo didn't reemerge for years, by which time Phoebe, who'd been raising five girls alone and unsupported, no longer wanted anything to do with him. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> Betty did, though, and she offered to keep house for him in Vallejo, California, in exchange for a place to live. This was in 1943, and the arrangement only lasted a few weeks. Betty didn't keep house, according to Cleo, but was out all night and asleep all day. Cleo, however, was an alcoholic who bawled out the police when they came to his door to notify him of his daughter's murder. I don't want anything to do with this, he's reported to have said. So perhaps there was more to this story than their failed reconciliation. Betty's high school friends describe her as beautiful and different. One friend in particular talks about her walk, saying that she took tiny steps and held herself unusually straight and upright, and she looked more like she glided than walked. She was thought of as the prettiest of the five short sisters, and she had a couple of boyfriends in school. Her friends say that one of those boyfriends had never even kissed her, as she wouldn't let him. Betty dropped out of high school in her freshman year, taking a job as a waitress and a movie usherette to help support her family. Is that movie usherette someone who shows you to the seats in the movie theater? That is so old school. <laughs> Nowadays, it's like, yeah, go in and find your seat. And I hope it's not stained horribly. <laughs> 
but it's too dark for you to see. She had asthma, so when the war started, she moved to Florida for a common, as a common prescription for pulmonary ailments at the time was warm, humid climates. While there, she met Major Matt Gordon Jr., a P-51 pilot in the 2nd Air Commando's flying missions in the Pacific Theater. They fell in love and got engaged. Five days before VJ Day, Gordon was killed in a crash. Oh, that's so sad. Oh, oh, oh. War, man. War. She was back in Massachusetts at the time, working as a waitress. The news appeared to have devastated Betty. She's reported to have spiraled into a deep depression, changing markedly from the bright, playful, and kind version she's reported to have been before. There's a story about a pilot in Gordon's unit called TJ, whose wife wouldn't write to him while he was away. Knowing how much letters meant to deployed servicemen, Beth, as she called herself at the time, wrote letters to him and sent him a photo, which is still on display amongst the memorabilia of the 2nd Air Commandos Club. After Matt's death, Betty basically became a drifter. During the remaining year and a half of her life, she remained unemployed and basically homeless. She would couch surf from place to place, never staying anywhere for more than a few months, before finally heading out to California to meet Gordon Fickling, another pilot whom she had a budding romance with before meeting Matt Gordon. The attempt to rekindle their earlier romance didn't work out, and Betty was left wandering loose in California. During this period, she'd write to her mother once a week, telling her good news stories that weren't true, clearly trying to spare her from worrying about the reality of her situation. She'd stay a few nights at the homes of acquaintances and cashmere's money from men she met by telling them she was a war widow with a dead son. At one point, when attempting to sleep in an all-night movie theater, the cashier, who was sharing an apartment with her mother and brother, invited Beth to move in with them. Beth was staying there for about a month before she met a salesman named Robert Red Hanley. They dated a few times and then went to a motel together. It appears that nothing happens there, which might have something to do with the fact that Red was married. Beth fabricated a story about meeting her sister at the Biltmore Hotel, probably as a way to shake Red off. He took her there, left her at about 6.30pm, and that's where sightings of Elizabeth Short dry up. This was January the 9th, and six days later, her mutilated body would be found on Norton Avenue. Immediately, I'm like, we should be talking to Red! So who was Elizabeth Short? She was a real and complex human being, struggling with grief and youth which hadn't been particularly kind to her. But many people were kind to her, and she seems to have been kind to many people in her own turn. I guess the main reason I've gone into so much detail about her life and character is that so many of the theories, some of which we're about to get into, hinge on the idea that she was either a hooker or a loose lost girl, an archetypal aspiring actress, chewed up and spit out by Hollywood, or most offensively of all, a dark and manipulating femme fatale who got what was coming to her. You also did it, so it it just it makes everything like when you it's like oh yeah someone was murdered and then they tell you the back their their story it's like oh no it's like I whenever I'm watching a TV show that's not you know super well written or whatever and there's a there's a, a new character appears and they're like this is John he's a family man and he's wonderful he's got this great job he's just got this great opportunity to do this he's got two beautiful children at home and his wife loves him and he loves her and I'm, I'm like I say to my wife I'm like he's gonna die he's gonna die <laughs> he, no character is introduced so quickly and so much emotional backstory is built up without them being murdered or killed by the end of the episode it's just how tv works these are the most common portrayals and they're all highly unjust pictures betty didn't drink she never took a screen test or an acting class or an audition in fact the only evidence for her wanting to be an actress is that she stole one of her roommate's stories about casting calls and hollywood gossip for light and bright content 
for her letters home. She clearly wasn't promiscuous either. Even with all the usual caveats around evidence on the subject of sex, the consensus among the more serious investigators is that she was sexually active with only three of the men she dated. And this is a view shared by the LAPD, who started with the theory that she was a prostitute but very soon determined that she wasn't. And far from being a femme fatale, actually reading her letters and accounts of her actions, it's pretty clear that Jimmy Richardson's assessment is the best one. Not good, not bad, just lost and looking for something. In any big city, there's millions like her. The Investigation A cruel trick played on Phoebe Short, mentioned at the beginning of this episode, yielded a trail of past addresses to the LA Examiner. City editor Jimmy Richardson sent reporters out to all the past locations the doting mother had mentioned. One of these was Beth's last known address, the all-night cinema cashier's family residence where she'd been staying. The family gave the Examiner reporters two extremely hot leads. The fact that Beth Short had her luggage sent uh, from Chicago to the Railway Express warehouse in LA and that she'd last been seen with a man in his mid-twenties called Red or Bob. Examiner reports tracked the pair to the Mecca Motel just a few miles away and found that Red and Beth had checked in under their real names. Richardson offered the trunk up to Captain Jack Donahoe on the condition that it be opened in the examiner's offices. <laughs> Again, this feels like this should be a job for perhaps the police. <laughs> It's chains of evidence, all sorts of stuff here, guys. That, can you imagine going to court? It's like, yeah, so where'd you get the chest? Who looked into the chest? Well, the, the, the reporters did. Chain of custody, my dudes, come on. A few days later, when the examiner reporters had tracked down Red Hanley's whereabouts by flashing one of their courtesy badges at his wife, they were also able to ensure they were present at his arrest. Robert Red Hanley was an early and obvious suspect in the killing. Just like I said, gotta talk to Red. He was married with a newborn, a traveling salesman who sold pipe clamps. Back in the days when pipe clamps were a thing a small company made and needed salesmen to sell. I've no idea what a pipe clamp is. And he'd picked Beth up on a street corner for a sexual adventure. Or if you believe him, which I don't, he was conducting a test to see how much he loved his wife. Ah! Please, Red. Are you... <laughs> I, want, I wonder why Chris doesn't believe him. Because it's entirely unbelievable. I was testing myself! I love you! <laughs> ah! The LAPD gangster squad grabbed him, guns drawn, with the examiner reporters lurking in the wings. When they caught up with him, he famously said, I don't know why you're here. I didn't have anything to do with it. Red Handley was initially grilled for hours and also polygraphed what that's worth. Very little. Polygraphs are bullshit. The only thing I feel about polygraphs is that people don't know how unreliable they are. So if someone agrees to submit to one, then that's a pretty decent because people, you know... I don't, there's all these things about a cheetah polygraph, but it's just a roll of the dice. It's like, isn't the stats like it's 51% accurate or something, over 49%? So it's basically just a flip of the coin. But if you're willing to submit to one, then I think that's a pretty good indication that you're like, you know, you're probably not guilty. A few researchers still believe him guilty to this day, but there simply isn't enough in the ways of means, motive, and opportunity, and he's also alibied for some of the relevant time. In the meantime, the LAPD had sent their case notes over to the Sex Offenders Bureau, a department run by a dubiously qualified man named Dr. J. Paul DeRiver. DeRiver's bureau was responsible for assessing and recording anyone who was suspected or convicted of a sexual offense. The bureau had mounted the files, painstakingly recording sexual behaviors, impulses, physical attributes, behavior attributes, 
attributes. It was one of the very earliest examples of a sex offender's register. De Rivers' department was a logical and obvious place to go, but efforts were hampered by the morals of the time. The records were glutted with people who engaged in consensual acts of oral and anal intercourse as well as homosexual or bisexual activity, and the search was hopelessly marred by the mar-wide definition of pervert, which held at the time. DeRiver also wrote the first professional profile of the killer. I won't bore you with it, but it's basically a boilerplate which could apply to any sadistic sex killer. Probably the only salient detail is that DeRiver was sure the killer was American, by which he meant white, an assessment all subsequent credible profiles have agreed with. For the whole time this was happening, false confessions were flooding in to an extent which was taxing even for the largest investigation of its kind in American history. The police were running out of leads, and the papers were running out of content. Eight days after the body was found, someone purporting to be the killer called the city editor of the LA Examiner, Jimmy Richardson. According to Richardson account, Richardson's account, the call went like this. Okay, it's a transcript, so I'm just going to read it, and I will read the name of the person before I read the line. Caller. Is this the city editor? Richardson. Yes. Caller. What's your name, please? Richardson. Richardson. Caller. Well, Mr. Richardson, I must congratulate you on what the examiner has done in the Black Dahlia case. Richardson. Thank you. Caller. You seem to have run out of material. Richardson. That's right. Caller. <laughs> Maybe I can be of some assistance. Richardson. We need it. Caller. <laughs> I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll send you some of the things she had with her when she... Shall we say disappeared richardson what kind of things richardson uses a notepad to instruct staff to trace the call caller oh say your birth certificate her address book and a few other things she had in a handbag staff indicated richardson the call originates from the northern switchboard richardson when will i get them oh caller within the next day or so see how far you can get with them and now i must say goodbye you may be trying to trace this call richardson Wait a minute. Call ends. A few days later, a postal was awkward when you're doing this. Like Richardson, Richardson. A few days later, a postal worker saw an envelope addressed to the Examiner and other newspapers. The address had been spelt out with letters cut from magazines, then pasted on like a classic Hollywood ransom note. The post office intercepted it as a suspicious item, and at half past six on the evening of January the 25th, reporters and police descended on the Metropolitan Post Office to check its contents. The bag contained a variety of personal items, including Beth's birth certificate and a ten-year-old address book with the name Mark Hansen monograms on the front. The address book provided a list of 77 potential suspects, who the police got to work eliminating. It also led them in the direction of a nightclub owner, Mark Hansen, who confusingly shared a last name with one of the lead detectives on the case. Beth had stayed at Hansen's place on various occasions, and he was generally thought to have some shady connections. One researcher still believes Hansen and his circle of friends are the killers. But we've got more on that later. As far as the investigation was concerned, though, Hansen was cleared. The LAPD had repeatedly stated that Mark Hansen simply has no case to answer. So was poor Red Handley, who underwent multiple grillings in order to clear his name, and was so hounded by the press and amateur sleuths that he ended up in a mental institution. Oh my god. At first I was like making fun of this guy, uh, and now it's like, that is, that is not, not nice. On the same day, January 25th, a member of the public reported seeing a handbag and a pair of high-heeled shoes on top of a trash can near Norton Avenue. 
Thinking this suspicious, he reported it to the police, but the trash collectors beat him to it. After many hours of painstakingly combing through the dump, police located the handbag and a single shoe. Red Hanley was brought in to identify the articles, which he was able to do, as it paid to have the shoes repaired, and he claimed to smell lingering traces of Beth's scent on the bag. In the meantime, detectives were going door to door in the neighborhood where the body was found, asking people if they knew of anybody living in the area with either a mental disturbance or a background in medical studies. So, what did the cops have. They had a bunch of Beth's personal belongings, including love letters that she never posted, photos of her with servicemen, as well as with her fiance. Her personal documentation, dozens of false confessions, including one which nearly got to the charging stage, dozens of suspects, all of whom had only tenuous connections to her, and no clear idea of where she'd been in the week her body was found. They also had a series of letters and postcards from someone calling themselves the Black Dahlia Avenger, some of which seemed authentic and some more dubious. Some of these communications were printed in ballpoint pen, which was remarkable for the time. Ballpoints were a relatively new technology at the time, prohibitively expensive and suggestive of a military connection, as they were most frequently armed forces issue. In one of these notes, purportedly from the killer, he promised to give himself up by a certain date, but reneged on the deal. Despite this apparent wealth of evidence, with no DNA or CCTV technology, police were pretty much at a dead end. Moreover, the newspapers were all running their own pet theories one of which linked the killing to the Cleveland torso murder as a famous case from several years before, and some of which were just plain ridiculous. Like the theory that Beth Short must have been killed by a lesbian as she didn't have any female paraphernalia like hairbrushes and the like with her in the week before she died, so she must have been staying with the lesbian who killed her. Well, to the 1940s, everybody. And so the investigation gradually petered out. The agents and officers from other forces went back to their original units. A couple of other sex murders distracted the public and the newspapers, and the roaring white-hot flame of public interest died down to a banked fire which has not really gone out since. There are quite a few researchers who are highly critical of the police investigation, but my own research has unearthed a diligence and state-of-the-art effort. Numerous forensic techniques were pioneered during this case, and hundreds of detectives borrowed from other forces or drawn from the elite LAPD units were operating under extreme public scrutiny and followed up every credible lead, sometimes so overzealously that they were subject to lawsuits. It seems that the thing which scuppered the police at the time was a forensically aware one-off killer, an organized offender, of the kind which is the very hardest to catch, and a victim who seems to have taken great pains to make herself elusive. Yeah, this is... Uh, normally, like, we're fairly critical of the police when they don't do things wrong, but for what the picture Chris has painted here, it seems like the police did an amazing job. So I'm not sure why people are normally bagging on the police on this one. It seems like it was one of those rare cases where the killer is outsmarting a competent police force. Rare. Rare. Normally the killer's dumb and the police are dumb. The Theories Interest in this case has never really flagged, and theories pinpointing one suspect or another come out with surprising frequency. In this way, the case is very similar to that of Jack the Ripper, with genuine researchers and cash-in merchants alike publishing new books on a regular basis. There are too many theories for a comprehensive look, and this has been quite a long script already, but I'd like to end by outlining a representative sample of the highest profile theories and their strengths and weaknesses. I know that some listeners might be upset by having their own pet theories discounted or not mentioned at all, such as the curious endurance of emotional attachment to the case, but there's only one there's only room for the broadest of overviews in the most of the most famous ones, as there's enough material to run an entire channel on the Black Dahlia alone. So with that being said, let's jump into some of the most influential takes on the Dahlia case. I love Chris there, it's like an apology without being an apology. 
it's like i know that you might be upset you shouldn't be so emotionally attached to it while somehow managing to sound apologetic well done chris james elroy's theory At 10.10 a.m. on Sunday the 22nd of June 1958, LAPD put out a call saying that a dead body had been found at Kings Row and Tyler Avenue, El Monte. The body had been found by some kids playing Little League near the Arroyo High School. It was a woman strangled with a nylon stocking and a cotton cord. She was a divorced 43-year-old nurse whose name was Geneva Hilika Elroy, mother of 10-year-old James Elroy, who'd go on to become one of the USA's most famous crime writers. As a boy, Elroy hated his mother, believing his father's account of her as an alcoholic whore. He talks about having wished her dead just months before her body was found. About a year later, his dad handed him a copy of Jack Webb's The Badge, which included an account of the Black Dahlia case. From that moment on, Elroy became obsessed with the Black Dahlia, using it as a sort of totem for his own mother's murder. The LAPD never found his mother's killer, and the whole situation understandably had a major impact on Elroy's life. He spent his 20s and some of his 30s drunk and hopped up on amphetamines, did a stint in the army, worked odd jobs, and spent some time breaking into houses in order to steal the underwear of schoolgirls that he'd become obsessed with. Eventually, he cleaned up his act and began his life's true work, crime writing. One of the books he wrote was The Black Dahlia, a fictionalized account of the famous case. While Elroy never claimed to know the truth of the Black Dahlia murder, by the time he wrote the novel he was already a highly influential figure in the USA, having achieved a smash hit with LA Confidential. Whoa! I know that! In The Black Dahlia, Elroy blends together sexual obsession, the corrosive side of Los Angeles' relationship with Hollywood, the city's endemic corruption, and his own obsession with his mother's murder and the sort of predatory sex criminal who might commit such an act. The book weaves Beth Short and her murder into a mythical LA, distorting her into a femme fatale involved in stag films who crossed the wrong people in high society. I don't know what a stag film is. Um, but this is, importantly, fictional. This is not a true story. Is this one of these things where people read it and they then apply the details of the fictionalized account to the real story? That's not good. It's important to note, though, that this isn't by any means Elroy's theory of what happened to Beth Short. It's openly and self-consciously a work of fiction, an exercise in myth-making and the expiation of personal pain. Elroy's an expert on L.A. crime, has an honorary detective's badge from the LAPD, and can frequently be found mo mooning around in their files and archives. But his Black Dahlia scenario isn't intended as a literal truth. It's a narrative emblem of the corruption of the times and a mirror held up to the evils of lust, greed, and dehumanization which still exist today. Elroy himself entertained, until very recently, theories put out by both George Hoddle and Larry Harnish, although these days he says the two things he refuses to talk about are the Black Dahlia and Donald Trump. His fictionalization of her story is so convincing, however, that it's colored a significant amount of the later research into the case, and for many who've read the book or watched the De Palma film, this version of the Dahlia's demise is the one that resonates as true. Which is stupid, but people are taken in by this stuff. It's crazy. Like, it's fiction. It's fiction. But there's lots of stuff where it's like based on a true story and it's like huge liberties are taken. And then people are like, yeah, that's how it was, right? And the further we get from the events, the more it becomes easier to do that, which is annoying. Dad did it. Knowlton and Hoddle. A surprising number of people seem to be convinced that a relative of theirs murdered Beth Short, and a surprising number of these people are certain that the murderer 
was their father. This might say extremely interesting things about the American psyche and the adjacency of paternal relationships to fear, sex, and foreboding, or it might not. Not being a psychiatrist, I couldn't really say. In any case, in 1995, a book called Daddy Was the Black Dahlia Killer was published. In it, a woman called Janice Knowlton made the startling claim that she had witnessed her father, George Knowlton, murdering Beth Short in their garage. She says she had seen him bisect the body in the sink before being made to assist in the disposal of the corpse. Janice claims that she was 10 years old at the time. The book, co-authored with well-known crime writer Michael Newton, garnered significant attention. Here was first-hand testimony relating to one of the most gruesome and prominent crimes in the post-war era. Premise of an innocent child, unaware of the significance of what she was seeing and then putting the pieces together as an adult, was a compelling one for the general public. And There was widespread reporting that the Dahlia case had finally been solved, except of course it hadn't. Is this going to be a case of false memories? Because that is a super intense thing to remember and I don't know, for some reason I'm just because I know it's not a solved case, but it does seem like this is just too much. There are one or two problems with Janice Knowlton's account, first and foremost being that it's almost entirely based on recovered memories, a fad in the kookier sections of the psychotherapy community which has since been thoroughly debunked. Yeah, there was this um there was the child sex abuse thing within there was some weird church or something. I did a video on this on one of my other channels where basically psychiatrists or psychologists, whoever it was, hypnotists were like recovering memories from people and then being like, and then you were abused and then this happens and all of this stuff. Except, and people got in like trouble. I don't remember if people went to jail or whatnot. But then it turned out to just be like, oh no, this false recovery memory thing isn't recovering memories. We're just actually implanting these memories by being like, you remember that, right? You remember that. You remember that. And then the people were like, yeah, I guess I remember that. And then they genuinely believed that they did remember it, which is crazy. And it's just this whole thing. Memory is horribly unreliable. As we've discussed before in Casual Criminals, there's a good argument for the idea of eyewitness testimony being thrown out of, of court and just relying on forensics and stuff because it's just so famously unreliable. The idea of recovered memories is simple enough and superficially sensible enough that the medical profession initially approached it with an open mind. The basic theory is that the brain protects itself from traumatic experiences by suppressing memories, and various forms of therapy, including drugs and hypnosis, can be used to dredge these very same memories back up. The first part of the theory is certainly true, while the second turned out to be arid nonsense. It wasn't long before repressed or recovered memory therapists were unearthing information about their parents' reign as Amenhotep III in a past life, or forgotten years spent as a dog before a wizard cursed them with human form. Is this true? That's what about say. You remember being a wizard. I mean, you remember being a wizard dog, right? You remember it. Yeah, yeah, no, I remember being a dog. Sure. I was Amenhotep III's dog. I just really wanted to be a cat. They loved cats. In short, the majority of recovered memories were, in fact, false memories, and the less wacky ones included, unfortunately, multiple memories of supposed child sexual abuse. They were insidiously believable and led to a great deal of unnecessary pain and harm. In the case of Janice Norton, not only did she remember helping Dad with the Black Dahlia murder, she also claims to have been sold into a satanic sex cult in Pasadena at the age of nine, and that she was sexually abused by Walt Disney, Gene Autry, and an improbably long list of Hollywood celebrities. She also claims that Beth Short was impregnated by her father before suffering a miscarriage and that this was the reason for the murder as LAPD. This is one of those things where it's like, yeah, I do. It's like, okay, starts off as vague. Can you imagine being the police, uh, police person interviewing her? It starts off as vaguely believable. 
I've got a lead on the Black Dahlia. I helped my dad dispose of the body. And the cop's like, oh my god, are you serious? We've got to, we've got to take this extremely seriously. Scott, I've got something else to tell you. Also, I was molested by Walt Disney. And they detected me like, all right, crackpot. <laughs> all right, let's call the psychiatrist. As LAPD detective John Peason, John, who was in charge of the case at the time, the things she is saying are not consistent with the facts of the case. She also claimed that the LAPD were involved in a high-level cover-up to mask her father George's involvement in the murder, and also somewhat paradoxically claimed George Hoddle, an LA doctor and father of her sometime pen pal, Tamar Hoddle, was a suspect in Beth Short's killing. Janice Knowlton, who'd been given memory recovery therapy as part of treatment for depression after a hysterectomy, appears to have been a disturbed woman who happened upon two simultaneous phenomena, recovered memory therapies and the satanic abuse panics of the late 80s and early 90s. Janice tragically died of an overdose of prescription drugs in 2004. The Orange County coroner deemed this to be a suicide. The other prominent dad-did-it accuser is a retired LAPD homicide detective called Steve Hoddle. Steve's father, Dr. George Hoddle Jr., was a prominent Hollywood doctor at the time of his murder, a surgeon, a surgeon specializing in sexually transmitted diseases. A surgeon specializing in sexually transmitted diseases? What does a surgeon need to do for sexually transmitted diseases? It's kind of scary. <laughs> ah, genital herpes will chop your penis right off. Shortly after Dr. Hoddle's death, Steve Hoddle was given his father's photo albums. Among the many pictures of his father hobnobbing with Hollywood celebrities were several photos of unidentified women, two of which Steve Hoddle identifies as Elizabeth Short. This set Steve off on a wide-ranging investigation, drawing on his 24 years of experience in the LAPD. He discovered that his father had been tried for molesting his daughter, Steve's sister Tamar, or, and also Janice Norton's pen pal, and that she'd also accused him of murdering Short. On top of this, Dr. Hoddle had been a suspect in the Black Dahlia investigation in 1950 and had also been suspected of murdering one of his assistants, potentially to cover up the Black Dahlia murder. This sounds pretty intense. Steve Hoddle not only linked his father George to the Black Dahlia, but also to the subsequent red lipstick murder, another sexually motivated killing with unusual features. Steve Hoddle released his findings in a book, Black Dahlia Avenger, A Genius for Murder, The True Story, thus demonstrating a genius for subtitles. <laughs> It's a very clickable YouTube title. The Genius Murder, A True Story. Avenger. The book was an immediate commercial success and garnered so much attention that Steve was invited to present his theory to the LAPD cold case unit. But there's multiple problems with this theory. Firstly, members of the Short family have dismissed the first two photographs, which kicked off the investigation, saying that they are certainly not of Beth Short. Numerous LAPD investigators have also declared that the pictures bear no resemblance to her, and even Hoddle himself now admits that one of them isn't the Black Dahlia. So the one thing that kicked it all off is not reliable. It's not a great start, is it? When you a cop, come on. And I'll. As for the allegations of sexual abuse, Tamar Hoddle, who was 14 at the time, also accused 19 other people, including her classmates, of molesting her, and her father testified that a psychiatrist had diagnosed her as a compulsive liar who told fantastical stories on a range of subjects. Sorry, There's also the fact that nowhere in his investigation is Steve able to place his father together with Elizabeth Short, and that people who knew both Short and Hoddle at the time are certain that the two didn't know each other. And then there's the fact that the 1950 investigation swept up Dr. Hoddle only because they were investigating every LA doctor who'd been accused of a sex crime, and that all the evidence unearthed in surveillance and investigation of Dr. Hoddle tends to eliminate this suspect, to quote the file. Yeah, this 
again it's something that okay it starts off reasonable this guy seems to have a pretty good case and then it all falls apart under scrutiny which is why like scrutiny or peer review or whatever you want to call it whatever they call it in police world is super important because one person you can just get railroaded into the idea this guy got railroaded into the idea of his father knowing the black dahlia because of some photographs that he found in an old album and then he was like oh, i'm gonna link everything together and make this case and then when it comes up to other people who aren't just locked into that one course of action it all falls apart which is good because otherwise you end up with you know if any one person has too much power like if this guy pursued this all the way then it'd be like this guy's definitely guilty i'm 100 sure even though he's wrong reviewers in la in la absolutely panned the book pointing out its many unproved asser- assertions sweeping conclusions and general lack of evidence you were a cop mate come on while one DA, Stephen Kay, professed himself convinced he's in a minority of one with he's in a minority of one with regard to the law enforcement community. The cold case units and the rest of the LAPD and DZ, DA's office are flatly unconvinced by what's been described as a loose chain of circumstance at best and a wild fabrication of evidence at worst. <laughs> this guy really didn't like his dad. It's like, yeah, I think you're a I think you murdered this woman and you're a sexual abuser to his own dad. Just and I'm who's dead, by the way. Just all is just wild fabrication of evidence. Mental. He must have not been a, the best dad ever. I'm gonna guess. Since the publication of the Black Dahlia Avenger, Steve Hoddle has gone on to credit his father with 25 other homicides in two countries, as well as claiming that his father, Dr. George Hoddle, was the Zodiac killer. Oh my god, talk about daddy issues, Jesus. While this doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the argument for the Black Dahlia theory, it does call into question the competence of its originator and raises the question as to why the older children are so determined to accuse their father of evil deeds. This question, in fact, is one of the reasons that adherents to the theory still cling to it, and it's an intriguing idea. The facts, however, don't support it. There are just too many gaps too many unproven assertions and too many experts and law enforcement officers who have carefully examined the claims before roundly dismissing them so one thing we learned about dr hoddle he did his kids did not like him they did not like him to the extent that they accused him of 25 murders and child molestation holy the eat well theory Pooh Eatwell is an Indian-born English true crime writer who studied literature in Oxford and has worked as a lawyer and television producer in the past. Eatwell first made her mark with a book about the pathologically private Fifth Duke of Portland. In 2017, she published her treatment of the Black Dahlia case in her book Black Dahlia Red Rose. In it, she highlights Leslie Dillon, Mark Hansen, whose address book Beth had been using as her own, and Jeff Connors as the prime suspects. As we already know, Mark Hansen was an acquaintance of Beth Shorts and was a nightclub owner who was accused of having underworld connections. According to several accounts, Hansen was sexually obsessed with Shorts and had been rebuffed by her on multiple occasions. Leslie Dillon, who was a bellboy at the time of the murder, was an ex-mortician's assistant and had a self-confessed interest in sexual sadism on which subject he hoped to write a book. In 1948, Dylan began writing Dr. D. River over at the Sex Offenders Bureau using the alias Jack Sand. In his communications, Dylan expressed his interest in sadism and also pointed to one Jeff Connors as a likely suspect in the Dahlia killing. Dr. River believed that Connors was a figment of Dylan's imagination and that Dylan himself was the killer wow okay he proposed a meeting with dylan which he attended with undercover police officers the meeting took place in las vegas and dylan and deriva traveled together to san francisco in an unsuccessful attempt to find connor's 
During this trip, DeRiva kept Dylan talking, and when he proved to know intimate details of the killing kept from the public, the undercovers from the gangster squad took him into custody and drove him back to LA, where he was held for questioning. During this questioning, he proposed that he thought Beth Short had been killed in a motel room. Pew Eatwell points out that one of the bungalows at the Astro Hotel had been found to be covered in blood and fecal matter on the day Beth's short body was found. In the meantime, the cops managed to find Jeff Connors, but inconsistencies between Connors and Dylan's testimony led them to release both suspects. The police file on the Dahlia case hasn't yet been released, so we don't know what those inconsistencies were, but it seems that they hinged on the suspect's connection to Beth Short and cast doubt whether they were actually connected at all. Pewie well believes that Hanson, Dylan, and Connors were co-conspirators in the Dahlia murder. Her hypothesis is that Hanson ordered the killing and the other two carried it out at the Astor Hotel. She points out that Hansen had a great many connections in the police and speculates that Dylan, who was neck and neck with Hansen as the prime suspect as late as 1951, was only released because Hansen had influence over a corrupt police sergeant involved in the investigation. I mean, this is all very nice and convenient, but what's the deal with the evidence? What's the evidence situation here? Like the corrupt police sergeant? Do we have speculation? I mean, lots of this is speculation. This is certainly one of the most compelling theories, especially given that a year after publication of the book, the son of the ga of one of the gangster squad members released details of conversations it overheard between his father and other investigators. These amounted to the police firmly believing that Hanson and Dylan were involved in the killing. I mean, again, it's a memory from a very long time ago, but the fact that it, like, links into this is nice. I mean, not nice, but indicative. These amounted to the police firmly believing that Hanson and Dylan were involved in the killing. The hypothesis was that Hanson, Dylan, and Connors were part of an organized robbery ring where one of the crew would get a job at a hotel for long enough to learn how to access the night safe. They would then quit and rob the safe for jewelry and cash. The working theory of the gangster squad members was that Beth Short had somehow got mixed up in this gang and was killed for her silence. This chimes in with the fact that Dylan was wanted for robbery in Santa Cruz at the time and was a known associate of Hanson. There was also the fact that Hanson was linked to three other suspects, all medical doctors, and was according to one of the detectives, a Swedish man who attended a Swedish surgical academy. I mean, this sound, this is like more gang stuff, right? And gangs don't do all, like, we heard what happened to that body earlier in today's episode, and that was not the bullet in the back of the head gang killing of someone who they want to keep silent, or for whatever reason kill. This was this weird, perverted, sexually motivated killing. So unless they just happened, one of them just happened to be this sort of person, and even if they were, they probably wouldn't do it in this case because then the other guys would know that they were a weird, sexually motivated murderer. That seems like a pretty big hole. Of course, there are issues with this one as well. First and foremost is the manner of Beth's killing. Yes, exactly. A classic sexual sadism murder where the body was subsequently put on display. This doesn't match with the MO of a gangland slaying of the time very neatly at all. Exactly. Of course, Dylan's interest in sexual sadism and Mortician's assistant background make him a promising suspect, but not only did police believe Hanson and Dylan not to be the killer, there's also the slight issue with the fact that Dylan was in San Francisco for the missing week during which Beth would have been killed. Yeah, but there's more than one of them, so it could been the other dude so even if this guy he he admitted to being a, interested in sexual sadism and stuff like that but it would be truly insane for him to to do this i mean this is probably my favorite theory so far but there's still holes 
There were also problematic aspects to the LAPD's questioning of Dylan, and he received a cash settlement from the department as a result of a lawsuit he filed. And as for Hansen and his supposed Swedish connection, he was actually born in Denmark. Hansen had no criminal record and no history of violence, and despite being the prime suspect until 1951, no charges were ever filed against him, with the LAPD definitively saying that he had no case to answer. And as for his organized crime connections, no definite, no definitive evidence of these has ever been provided. This seems to be an assumption based on his occupation, and again, nothing in the MO of the murder really points in that direction anyway. There's also the fact that Eatwell's account relies heavily on the idea of Beth Short as an aspiring actress and hustler prowling the streets of LA looking for opportunities for fraud and sexual adventure, a picture which doesn't fit the real Elizabeth Short. Having said all of that, Eatwell's theory seems to be one of the more plausible ones. Yeah, I mean, just it seems like she's based, like we know uh, she wasn't trying out to be an actress or whatever, so. But that doesn't mean necessarily, like, there's a lot of holes. There's a lot of lack of evidence. But it does seem to be the neatest one so far. But I don't necessarily think that it's true. On the other hand, multiple researchers have dismissed it, both because Dylan was alibied and for what they describe as cherry-picking of evidence. And finally, it was account relies most heavily on the FBI file, which she had unredacted through an FOIA request in 2015. I've read the file, and it's not particularly helpful. The FBI never really had any carriage of the case, and it's mostly just a collection of newspaper clippings, terse reports, and the occasional statement delivered at second or third hand. The Harsnish Theory And now we come to Larry Harshness's theory. This one's widely cited as the most plausible, and it has a couple of things going for it. Firstly, there's the fact that Larry was able to combine archival research with in-person interviews with many of the main players while they were still alive. Firstly, there's the fact that Larry was able to combine archival research with in-person interviews with many of the main players while they were still alive. There's also the compelling fact that Harnish wasn't trying to solve the crime, but rather put together an unsensationalized and accurate history. And he stumbled over his suspect rather than exposing himself to confirmation bias by working towards him. Yeah, the railroading we talked about earlier. And then there's the framework he used to qualify the suspect once it found him, one which ignores the film noir aspects of the case and looks simply for connections, motive, and aspects which match physical evidence. Harnish focuses on a Dr. Walter Bailey, a prominent Hollywood surgeon who specialized in hysterectomies and mammectomies, which is noteworthy given the bisection of the body. Bailey was chief of staff to the LA County Hospital and had his private surgery in a complex of medical offices only a few blocks away from the Biltmore Hotel, where Beth Short was last seen alive. As if that wasn't enough, Bailey's family home was one block or a 45-second walk away from the site where the body was found. Dr. Bailey had three children, two adopted daughters, and one son who was tragically killed by a passing car while trying to move one of her sisters off the road. Oh man, that's bad. One of Bailey's adopted daughters was matron of honor at the wedding of Elizabeth Short's eldest sister. From these facts, Larry Harnish proposes that Beth Short might have contacted her eldest sister, who had by now moved into state, who may have directed her to the Bailey family for help. She could have contacted Dr. Walter Bailey, told her a sob story about her dead son, and then been found out as a liar. This could have enraged Dr. Bailey enough to kill her. Which sounds pretty thin, yet yeah, does, if not for a few notable facts. First off, Dr. Bailey was suffering from a kind of brain lesion at the time, which is often associated with what's called antipodean personalities. 
What this means is that his condition, which was terminal and noted in his post-mortem, could have caused a severe personality change and even hypersexuality and homicidal rage. As for evidence of this change, around this time, Bailey had left his family in order to shack up with his young assistant, and they would frequently spend their evenings eating takeaway food and watching footage of surgeries while playing classical music. Oh my lord. This is one of those things that's so scary. Like, the brain can just get ruined. Like, now, it's like, my idea is like, watching surgeries while listening to classical music, that's some fucked up, like, Hannibal Lecter my dude. But then it's like, this wasn't this dude. His brain broke, and this happened to him. Which is intense, because anyone's brain can break. And then suddenly it's like, yeah, I was super into cutting up bodies, because I got a brain lesion. It's like, oh my god. And you just can't control yourself. That is, it's terrifying. This can happen to people. This can happen to you. The breakup of Bailey's family was, according to his daughter, sudden and scandalous, suggestive of the kind of antipodean personality swing which his brain lesion was known to cause in some people. Multiple profiles pointed out that the killer placed Short's body where he did because he had a personal connection with the neighborhood and had a reason to be angry with its residents. Well, Dr. Bailey lived in the neighborhood, and when he lost his young son to that passing motorist, he felt resentful towards his neighbors for not helping more. Quite a few researchers and LAPD detectives like this theory because it matches quite a lot of the evidence. This is generally agreed to be a one-off killing. The killer's signature is unique and hasn't been repeated. The location is strange and high risk, but the connection between the Short and Bailey families might explain that. And Larry's research in and of itself is highly respected and known for its lack of sensationalism and bias. But there are, of course, a few problems. The Bailey daughter who attended Beth Short's sister's wedding denies any close connection to the Short family, which weakens one of the central pillars of Harnish's theory. And he says, to his mind, the denial was too pat and not very credible. But that's just Larry's opinion, and the fact remains that the connection between the two families is brought into doubt by her testimony. But probably most problematic of all is the fertilizer and feces found in Beth's short stomach. This points to a third location, a murder den, as the gangster squad detectives termed it at the time, as the fertilizer was an industrial type and not typically found in homes. Additionally, the condition the body was in points to several days of torture, and it seems unlikely that Bailey would have been able to carry this out at any of his regular locations. Interestingly, Larry contends that the feces found in the stomach were part of normal digestion, but feces don't form or enter the stomach naturally, except in the case of serious digestive illness, and there was no evidence of this in the case of Beth Short. LAPD Detective Brian Caru. I mean, and also just to say, it's also a bit strange, like, it's part of the normal digestive process. Okay, if something's going wrong, but then also for there to be fertilizer in there as well, that's also weird. So it does imply that someone was, like, feeding her fertilizer, which is so, sort of strange. So is it a stretch to see that they fed her feces as well? I don't know. That seems... Doesn't uh, that I think she ate that poo, which is weird. LAPD detective LAPD detective Brian Caru oversaw the case when Larry first presented his theory. Finds this the most intriguing of the various theories: the previously unnoticed coincidental connections between Bailey and the Short family, as well as the physical locations of both his private surgery and family home, intrigued him. Detective Carr said, "When you run into coincidences in a homicide investigation, you want to go. Wait a minute." And that's what made me say, wait a minute. Detective Rick Jackson, a veteran of the LAPD robbery homicide and the deputy chief of the cold case unit, says that while Larry Harnish doesn't have the smoking gun, his theory definitely has to be included in the most likely theories. But maybe I'm just biased because Larry's been the most helpful and most accurate of all the researchers I came across in preparing this piece. Well, 
honestly though chris that's the sort of bias that you want to have because it's a bias towards good research and and writing an investigation which is not bias it's like objectively looking at the best source so i'm i'm with you i, I mean eat wells i felt was like second best decent maybe a bit too speculative i like larry's theory as well but maybe unbiased because chris likes it wrap up there isn't really a satisfying conclusion to this one not only did the victim never get justice but appalling injustices were also perpetrated against her memory and her family as well as countless others over the course of the very long and very intensive investigation it's one of those cases where everyone involved from the press to the police to the amateur sleuths charged hard for an outcome and got nowhere leaving multiple people bruised battered and broken along the way and to this day people and media companies are still cashing in on the sense sensationalized and deeply unfair portrait of Beth Short and the story of her murder as a morality tale. Researching this piece has been a bit of a journey for me. I started out ready to sink my teeth into a bit of Hollywood folklore as a form of grim entertainment, as all the cool noir aspects of this case are pretty much all I knew about. The hats, the dancing girls, the moody obsessed detectives, and so on. What I've ended up with is a genuine human tragedy, a horrific crime perpetrated against a vulnerable individual, and one where all the king's horses and all the king's men simply weren't able to put the pieces together again. Dismembered Appendices Number one, a massive thank you needs to go out to Larry Harnish, who kindly gave permission to use and cite his excellent research, and whose dedication to the accuracy and demythification of the Dahlia case basically made writing this script possible in the first place. Chris, wait, I just thought you were reading his book. That's awesome. Thank you. Amazing. Is his book out? I feel like, did we even mention the title of his book? I really must. Uh, yeah, okay, I've got some references here. His website is lmharnish, which is spelled H-A-R-N-I-S-C-H, and his book is called... I have it here. The Black Dahlia, The Long Strange History of Los Angeles's coldest cold case. So uh, go out and buy Larry's book. Go on then. That'd be a nice return of a favor if we can give him a bit of a plug there. Probably buy a copy myself. The Black Dahlia case is still open with the LAPD currently assigned to Detective Mitzi Roberts. She has been advised not to conduct interviews any longer as false confessions and members of the public coming forward with theories take too much time away from her regular duties. She says she averages about one call per week to this day. Number three, one of the less likely suspects mooted for the Black Dahlia murders was actor and filmmaker Orson Welles. This theory was outlined in a book called Childhood Shadows, in which the author, a neighbor of the Shorts in Massachusetts, pointed out that Welles had a volatile temper, had made mannequins supposedly, mannequins supposedly identical to the mutilated body, and had sawn a woman in half in a magic trick when entertaining the troops in World War II. Welles was never considered a suspect in the case, good, because this is all insane, despite having applied for a passport on the 24th of January, the day the package containing Beth's birth certificate and address book was mailed to the examiner and remaining out of the country for 10 months afterwards it seems unlikely to me but there it is <laughs> yeah that is what you call a coincidence and it's absurd that that is even considered number four i've given very short shrift to the organized crime theories about the dahlia murder to the extent of not really even mentioning most of them this could be explained by what i feel is their essential implausibility one such theory is that beth short was killed by gangster jack dragner to frame rival gangster mickey cohen who was never actually a suspect because none of the evidence pointed to him which means that this was either the most inept frame-up ever or the whole idea's just a bit silly. Guess where I'm going to lean towards that whole idea is a bit silly. 
Number 5. Quite a few of the researchers and authors I encountered while researching this piece were selling Black Dahlia merchandise. Classy, guys. Classy. Tea towels, coffee mugs, and so on. This led me on a surprising discovery that Black Dahlia merchandise is still a lucrative business to this day, though needless to say, none of the Short family benefit from these sales. Again, I'll say it. Classy. Number 6. Leslie Dillon, Piri Wells, and the LAPD's prime suspect for the killing named his daughter Elizabeth. But the one thing that shines through about Dillon was that he was a very strange guy indeed, and potentially this doesn't mean anything other than that. Number 7. Retired detective Ralph Asdell, who was alone to the investigation at the time, firmly believes that he's spoken with the killer. During a house-to-house, police encountered a neighbor who reported sighting a thin man near next to a light-colored car on Norton Avenue where the body was found. Adsall believed that he'd tracked down this driver who was working at a nearby restaurant, and when he went to interview him, he noticed his car was freshly painted black. Asdell is still haunted by this interview and has kept his case notes handy for more than 50 years, just in case someone asks about it. So, that wraps up today's lengthy exploration and different, I hope, and respectful uh, investigation of the Black Dahlia case. Thank you to Chris for writing it. Thanks to Jen, who did the edit. And, uh, of course, and also another thank you to Larry Harnish. Excellent stuff. Thank you, everybody. And, uh, oh yeah, leave a review. If you're listening to this as a podcast, that'd be grand. Uh, leave a comment, say hi. And as always, uh, if you're watching on YouTube, it's this goes out as a podcast and on YouTube if you want. And uh, thanks for watching. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.